Attention crew, this is your Captain Caliban speaking. This is a supplemental episode of Enterprising Individuals, where we bring you news and tidbits from the world of Trek, also interviews with special guests, and a few little surprises along the way. Happy Thanksgiving to you and yours. It's a holiday with a long and weird history that we can skip for now, but suffice it to say, it's got some of the purest values of any major holiday, uh, at least in my opinion. Oh sure, Genio probably does half their business that one week in November, but it's a holiday first and foremost about being with family and being thankful for what you've got. Thanksgiving didn't originate in America, although it's primarily associated with the pilgrims and all that jazz. Harvest festivals have been associated with this time of year ever since humans started growing things. But we just turbocharged it in that particularly American fashion. You know, 14 dishes, a a bird with eight drumsticks, an oil drum-shaped column of cranberry sauce, all served in the back of a monster truck, currently crushing a row of cars while fireworks go off. That fashion. Believe it or not, this episode is not actually about Thanksgiving. It's about someone else who wasn't from America, but we sure claimed him as soon as we existed. Last week, Alan Gratz and I talked about the Deep Space Nine two-parter, Improbable Cause, and the die is cast. And that two-parter is sort of bookended by a conversation between Dr. Bashir and Garrick. Bashir has let Garrick Julius Caesar by William Shakespeare to read, and Garrick's not really digging it. He, he's not impressed by Caesar as a character. Uh, after all, he reasons, as a statesman and a leader, Caesar should have known that there was a plot to assassinate him. And it seems like Cardassians aren't too impressed with tragedy and dramatic irony. But the real value of the sequence is that it becomes a parallel for Garrick's relationship with Anabrin Tain, his former mentor in the Obsidian Order and future commander in the attempt against the Dominion. When we reach the last act of the Dias cast, most of the Romulan Cardassian fleet is toast, and while Tain's ship is being shot out from under him, Garrick finally realizes how blind, even powerful, and clever men can be when they succumb to hubris. That's a cool moment. And you see moments like that all the time in the works of William Shakespeare. You also see allusions to the works of Shakespeare all the time in episodes of Star Trek series. It's just one of those things. It's Sometimes it's subtle, like an episode title, and sometimes it's overt, like Star Trek VI. I have something of a background with the works of Shakespeare. In another life, I was an actor. I was part of a classical theater repertory company. And I played roles on the stage from Shakespeare, like Henry V and Petruchio and Romeo and so on. So when a reference or an allusion to Shakespeare pops up in something, it usually rings a bell for me. And that bell is just a constant alarm when I watch Star Trek. Trek is lousy with Shakespeare references. And I asked Alan Gratz to come back this week and talk about them. We reference particular examples in the various series of Trek. We talk about our favorite intersections of Shakespeare and Trek. And we try to figure out just why Trek and Shakespeare seem to be such a great combo. And that conversation will take up this entire episode. So sweet sorrow or no, this is where we part. I'd like to remind you that if you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash EISTpod to become a member of the crew and to gain access to our exclusive subscriber content. Also, the holiday season's coming up, and when you're shopping on Amazon, please click through our Amazon banner on Enterprising Individuals or use our Amazon product links in the show notes of our episodes. That really helps the show at no extra cost to you. 
We'll be back next week with our last episode of the season. As is our custom, we'll be taking a look back at the guests and topics of this year and sharing some of the highlights from season four. We'll be taking a break after that to enjoy the holiday season before we return in early 2020 with season five. Speaking of the holidays, I hope you're having a wonderful Thanksgiving and that your Christmas is even better. That's it for me. Enjoy your family and your burned bird meat or whatever you partake of. And with that, let's get underway. Joining me once again on the show today is New York Times bestselling author of YA fiction, Alan Gratz. His new book, Allies, was released in October and was recently the number one new release on Amazon's children's military fiction list. Alan, welcome back to the show. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. It's great to have you back. Uh, I was looking at the uh, sort of notices and the reviews for your latest book, Allies, and they are very positive. And I was wondering about the construction of the story and sort of the idea behind it. Um, you've written about um, the the lives of children in war um, many times before, and we've talked about that on the show. But just the idea of there are so many stories to be told um, from the theater of World War II. Um, was it difficult to sort of find a new angle uh, in focusing on the character or characters that you do in Allies? Yeah, yes and no in this case. Uh, so this year, 2019, is the 75th anniversary of D-Day. And so I, yeah. wanted, I wanted to write a book about D-Day for, for middle schoolers, for middle grade readers. And yeah. um, the challenge here is I write books with kids as the main characters. And of course, most of the, the, the driving action of D-Day was done by adults, or at least what, uh, what we consider to be adults at the time, which were 17 and 18 year old kids sometimes. Sure. Um, so I can get away with some 17 and 18 year old kids, but for the most part, my age that I'm writing for is like, 12 years old, that 10, 11, 12 age range. And so I want my characters to be right around that age. And, um, you know, I thought that my whole book was going to be the, what, what most of us think of when we think of D-Day, that is those big flat bottom Higgins boats hitting the beaches at Normandy and the soldiers <laughs> yeah. running out, you know, the first 30 minutes of saving private Ryan. And, um, so, uh, but, and of course it is that, I mean, it, it is, that's a huge part of it. But what I discovered in my research, and this is what opened it up for me to bring kids into the story, is that of course there were a lot more people doing things behind the scenes and at other times besides those soldiers that we saw. So you had um, you had French people in the, the French resistance who were working uh, as early as midnight that night to cut phone lines and to sabotage rail lines and, and roads so that the Nazis couldn't send reinforcements to the to the coast. Mm. Um, you had uh, you had civilians who lived in the area. Um, and, uh, and there was actually this story about this girl, this French girl who, um, went swimming every day at the beach and one day left her bathing suit in one of the bathing huts on the beach and came back down the next day to get it. And that happened to be June 6, 1944. It happened to be, oh my God. <laughs> right. Now. So she bikes down to the beach to get her, to get her bathing suit back and there's a war going on. And, uh, she was a nursing student and she, realized that there were Englishmen on the beach. This was an English beach that she, that, that where, where she was, uh, at least one of the ones, you know, where the English soldiers were coming up off the beach. And, um, she spent the next two days, uh, helping soldiers, uh, helping wounded soldiers on the beach. Um, so there were, there were all these stories in the background and, and stories about, uh, marginalized people who went and, and, and did everything that, that white, um, middle-class American soldiers did, but oftentimes came home then to find that they were, they returned to that same kind of 
prejudice and, and persecution that they had faced before. There were black soldiers who served at D-Day. We don't often see their pictures because they arrived a little bit later, but they were still involved in the fighting. And right. um, they came home to find out that, that white uh, German prisoners of war were being treated better than they were in their own hometowns. And so, wow. yeah, so I found all these other stories behind the scenes. And our the main character of the book is is this young man. Um, he's 16. He's joined a little bit early. Um, and he is on the boat, and he's going to come up the beach, and we're going to follow him all the way through. But surrounding that and, and all around that uh, are, are all the different people that I show who made that path for him possible and, uh, and, and help him get up off the beach. So I found a lot of other ways to bring in other characters into that story. And those surrounding stories are also, they're just so fascinating and so human outside of what we tend to get with military fiction or military movies, which is the actual movements and maneuvers of the troops and the objectives that they're trying to complete. But seeing those stories is really interesting. I find that like Trek often covers stories like that when it approaches war. Sometimes we've got people shooting phasers and ship battles, but it's usually the the human stories of war, the effect of war on people who may or may not agree or even be involved with the conflicts, but the sort of stories that are in the margins of these great uh, wars. Yeah, and that's what I think I've been, I, that's where I've really been making my hay lately is is stories that have soldiers in them and tell battles. I've, I've written about the Battle of Okinawa. I've written now about mm. the about D-Day. But, but really my focus, it, while I tell the story of soldiers in those moments, my focus is on the people that it affects, the you know the people who live in that area, the people who um, who are affected by war. Um, you know, there's a there's a a, a a famous quote by a woman who the woman who uh, founded Save the Children, which is a big uh, UNICEF-like organization that works around the world to help kids who are in dangerous situations. And she said that every war is a war against children. And I, mm. I think that's a really powerful comment because, of course, we're not waging war on children, but in every war, children are victims and are swept up in it, and, and they didn't start it, and they're not fighting it. Um, they are the ones who are surviving it, hopefully, um, but oftentimes being victims of it, and that's, that's where I tell my stories. It's uh, it's a tough topic, uh, but it's great that you are writing these books. And I wish that there was an author like you when I was a kid <laughs> growing up, and I was fascinated with the stories, you know, of soldiers and uh, you know, Green Army men, that sort of thing. Right. But uh, I wish that I had had uh, books like this to tell those other stories. Um, as a YA author, are you a fan of uh, the His Dark Materials trilogy? Oh yeah, yeah, the Philip Pullman stuff. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. I just bring it up because I've been watching the HBO uh, BBC co-production series recently and have been um, very fascinated by their adaptation. There was, of course, like a very ambitious and not very successful adaptation by New Line Cinema right. in uh, the 2000s, trying to make it the new, the Lord of the Rings, you know. Uh, or a new Harry for Potter that generation. or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And kind of missing the mark on that and just yeah. seeing how, in a similar way to what you were talking about, uh, trying to take these themes and focus on characters that are sitting outside of this great struggle between uh, these sort of church ecclesiastical powers and these secular powers and uh, and just seeing, you know, the, the cracks that the people fall through uh, in that conflict. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think what's so genius about Pullman's books is that that he is talking about big, big stuff. I mean, really big religious ideas. But it's always, as you say, through the point of view of kids. Lyra is this uh, this girl who is caught up in in this huge battle, but it's really about her and the people that she loves and the people that she cares about. And, and I think those are the best stories, the ones that, 
you know, you can have these great sweeping epics that tell you, um, you, you know, the, about, about the, you know, the fall of the Roman Empire. But it, but it might be, I, I think it's much more interesting to f- see the people who are on the ground who are being affected by it and, and swept up in it. And um, so my challenge is always the same one that I'm sure that Philip Pullman faced, and that is how do you, how do you tell the larger story but but through the lens of a person who doesn't see all of it, right? Like through right. like the kids that I write about, they don't know the reasons that things are happening. They just see the effects of them, and so yeah. I have to, you know, I, I'm I'm bal- I'm walking this fine line between writing a book that teachers and parents want to put in kids' hands as a this is what D Day is. And then also, you know, like this is a book that will teach you something, but also like from the point of view of a kid who in that point, in that moment and in that point of view doesn't really know all the context of it. And um, so I do a lot of work in my author's notes to kind of bring the context back in. But I'm also trying to find ways to bring that in um, in my books and allies. I needed to tell people what June 5th, 1944 looked like. Like, what does the world look like the day before D-Day? Why is this day important? And, you know, my kid remembers being in a classroom in the States and seeing the modified map on the wall where Europe is all red. You know, Europe is now one big country. It's all Germany. And, um, you know, like when you think about it in those terms, when you when you think about like, oh, you could be sitting in a classroom and the map that you see every day is not the map that we see. It's a very different one where for for three or four years, people thought, well, this might be the future. Germany might be all of Europe. So um, I always have to find ways like that of, of making the history relevant to the kids in my stories. Absolutely. Uh, the author that we're going to talk about today, just to sort of segue into today's topic, is uh, somebody who also probably had to think about that sort of thing. Uh, Shakespeare was limited, of course, in scope just by the fact that he was putting a play on you know, on a wooden stage. <laughs> and so often uh, he could not show the battles and we would see instead people's reactions to them. But he was also chiefly concerned not just with the generals and the kings and queens who were involved in those conflicts, but also the, the mechanicals and the common people whose lives were being affected affected uh, by those battles. Yeah, I, I, I think that, uh, you know, Shakespeare's a hack. We have to admit that. I mean, he's totally... <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Let's um, get that out right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, I'm a way better writer than Shakespeare, obviously. Right, no, of um, course. No, uh, you know, he's... He's also he was dealing with politics at the time. He was trying to write plays that matched um, the, 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 that matched the political tone of the time period. You know, there's a reason that Hamlet is set in Denmark. Um, because that was an ally to England, and 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 so right. there were there were these connections there, um, you know. So he's he's writing within the political context of his day. He's writing um, things that are supposed to support and and uphold the the status quo of England at the time, but also writing about you know writing popular histories um, and other stuff. I mean comedies and 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 romance. Um, uh, his histories, of course. You know, if, if we're talking about it in the context of what I'm doing, are um, were, were 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 huge. And and what he did was, he took real people in those situations and told the story of real people dealing with those. And I think when we get into our discussion of of Shakespeare and Trek, that I think that's going to be core to it is um, the, the the exploration of the human condition and what it is to be human in the context of these big historical moments. Yeah, I agree. The, this topic uh, actually came up organically in several discussions I've had in the podcast this year. 
Uh, it's something that you might not think of, but on reflection, I think it seems kind of obvious. It's the clear parallels between Star Trek storytelling in its various forms and the works of William Shakespeare. And sometimes it's rather explicit, like having your movie villain just shout Shakespeare quotes <laughs> at people. Uh, but often uh, you can find much more subtle references and allusions and even story and character elements that wind up uh, in Trek stories that originated uh, in Shakespeare. And since you, you and I recently talked about a pair of DS9 episodes that are chiefly concerned uh, not only with the work of Shakespeare, but also the themes present in Shakespeare, particularly in Julius Caesar, uh, I thought you'd be the perfect person to have this discussion with me. Yeah, awesome. I, I love Shakespeare. I love Star Trek. Uh, it's, you know, like peanut butter and chocolate for me. And so, um, <laughs> in, in fact, I, um, I've i written two books that are based on Shakespeare. So way back at the beginning of my career, I wrote two young adult murder mysteries that are that, that totally cop their plots and characters from Shakespeare. Uh, something <laughs> Rotten and Something Wicked. Something Rotten is Hamlet, rewritten as a young adult murder mystery, and Something Wicked, as you will probably guess, being a Shakespeare aficionado yourself, is uh, Macbeth. And um, I chose as my main character Horatio. My character's name is Horatio Wilkes. He's a 17-year-old kid in the present day. <laughs> and um, my Horatio is one of my favorite characters in Shakespeare because, especially in Hamlet, uh, because he's one of the very few people who doesn't die at the end. And I thought, well, if you if you survive Hamlet, you've got to have something going for you. Um, yeah. Because <laughs> so, <laughs> pretty much, you know, like everybody else besides he and Fortinbras are dead at the end. Uh, so yeah. anyway, um, I, I wrote these two books and I I had the fun of adapting Shakespeare and taking all of these characters and all of these classic stories and finding ways to work them into my own fiction and, and to try and, and make them comment on the present day. And so I'm, I'm excited to talk about how Trek has done this since its very, very beginnings and all the way up yeah. through Discovery. Before you wrote those uh, those books, what was your sort of background with Shakespeare? So I had uh, read Shakespeare in school, um, but but uh, uh, it was really cool when I was in high school. We did we did um, Caesar um, and we did Romeo and mm -hmm. Juliet. But we also, when I was uh, a senior in high school, did uh, Henry the Fourth parts one and two. And mm -hmm. I really loved getting into the histories. Like that's when I, that's when Shakespeare really really struck something deep within me. I I had enjoyed reading Caesar and and Romeo and Juliet and, and, um, and, and struggled with them in the same way that, that young people often do because of the language. The stories are amazing and, and totally relevant, of course, still today, but accessing sure. the language is difficult. But really by my senior year in high school, I think that that's when I really started to, to dive deeply into Shakespeare. And I remember very clearly uh, being in uh, a bookstore and buying one of those mammoth like every Shakespeare play books, you know, like one of those, like one of those big leather bound books that had like every Shakespeare play in it. And yeah, I, yeah. I, I didn't set out to read every one, but I started reading some of those that I had heard of and that I knew that I hadn't studied in school. And I enjoyed that. And then when I went to, to college, I took uh, two different uh, Shakespeare courses. I took a histories course and a comedies course um, and, and really had fun there and, and, and was also taking writing classes and took a mystery and detective fiction class and created the character of Horatio, that character that I would later put into a book 17 years later uh, yeah. <laughs> while I was at college. And so wow. um, I had already been dreaming of ways of adapting Shakespeare. And, and I, I love films that adapt Shakespeare. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I was always a fan of Strange Brew. Um, but then when I figured <laughs> out... But then when I figured out that it was basically Hamlet retold with Bob and Doug McKenzie as the as yeah. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, I was like, I'm all in for this. Um, <laughs> like, I love 
I love funny takes on Shakespeare. I love serious takes on Shakespeare. I, I just, I love that mix and match and that remix culture uh, of, yeah. of Shakespeare. And so um, I guess it was all through college and then I really couldn't let it go. And, and, and um, my second and third books were Shakespeare remixes, Shakespeare adaptations, because I loved it so much. Yeah, there's something about that tome, and there's very few things in the uh, in sort of the Western tradition of literature that are so collected, other than say the Bible or maybe uh, the poems or plays of um, lesser uh, authors. But having that tome of whatever it was at the time, you know, thirty four, thirty five, thirty six plays, yeah, that fascinated me um, like a like a magic text, you yeah, know, like a like a codex. And I remember opening it as a young kid and barely not understanding anything oh, and yeah. then as my education continued sort of feeling like I was unlocking secrets and, and spells and sort of mysteries and that definitely um, kept me uh, in the loop as far as Shakespeare went um, and I also you know I studied uh, Shakespeare in college you know I was um, studied theater in college and uh, worked as a as an actor uh, for about 15 years uh, seven of which I spent at a uh, Shakespeare repertory company and oh, nice. played uh, a lot of Shakespeare uh, roles on stage. Yeah. Also, you were talking about everybody being dead in Hamlet. <laughs> I actually, I was actually in a play called Fortinbras, uh, oh. which was a sequel to Hamlet by Lee Blessing. <laughs> and I played Fortinbras in that. Nice. And it was you know, not done in verse, but it was done you know, in the sort of modern style as the story after Hamlet and deconstructing right. the idea of Fortinbras as this foil or hero to Hamlet and his ambitions and how all that can get turned upside down. And the, basically the action of the play is Fortinbras is trying to administrate Denmark now that he's in control <laughs> and Horatio is the only guy left. And instead of the, the uh, father, uh, Father Hamlet, all the characters from the original play are now back as ghosts. Oh, nice. <laughs> and uh, in the sort of same tradition as, as uh, Father Hamlet or King Hamlet, they are all trying to do the opposite of what they were doing in life because that got them killed. And right. so Polonius <laughs> won't talk to anybody. And uh, Ophelia is uh, rather sexually adventurous now, uh, whereas she was chased before. And so, yeah, it's um, just sort of like a, a kind of a gloss or retelling on the original Hamlet story. That sounds like a lot of fun. And I know you've done some Star Trek inspire or some Star Trek themed things like you did a Star Trek Christmas Carol and obviously not Shakespeare, <laughs> yes. obviously not Shakespeare, but have you ever done the Klingon Hamlet? No, I haven't. Uh, there's a long running uh, production of Klingon Christmas Carol that I uh, did direct uh, here. Um, but I don't think we – when that was at its height, maybe 10 years ago, uh, I think that there was a Klingon Hamlet um, – uh, in the Twin Cities here where I'm based. Nice, nice. And I know they still do it occasionally other places. But yeah, that would be fascinating to see. Um, I, it's not something that you could just sit down and read no. <laughs> unless you are you know, <laughs> fluent in both Klingon and Shakespeare. Yeah, but you'd it's want, fascinating you'd, that... You'd want to kind of watch a selected scenes from that, I think. I think... Oh, uh, certainly, yeah. I think I think watching like all eight hours of that in, in Klingon would be like... Um, I don't know, may, maybe a form of Klingon torture in some ways, but... Um, <laughs> yeah, but, but and it, we could easily, as far as Christmas Carol goes, I mean, we could easily be doing this show on Dickens instead of uh, oh, yeah, Shakespeare yeah. and the connection yeah, yeah. to Trek. For but, all the... Yeah, yeah but... Reason, yeah. Christmas Carol is such a familiar story, and there's so, there's so much humor uh, sort of baked into it that I think it gives itself well to parody 
and looking at the Klingon side of life. But like just to that would be epic but dry, I think, right. a Klingon right. Hamlet. I did personally write just this is off Shakespeare off Shakespeare, but on on to Dickens. I did personally write uh, for a for a role playing game that I was doing with other people set in mm. the Star Trek universe. I did write a uh, a Ferengi version of a Christmas Carol, um, which really. <laughs> Which really plays, you know, when when Scrooge is the is the main character and the hero, uh, you really get to flip some stuff when it's a Ferengi version. So I had a lot of fun with that. That would, yeah. We <laughs> when we were doing uh, the Klingon Christmas Carol, we sort of opined about the existence of a Ferengi Christmas Carol, uh, which would be, you know, a great idea, you'd think. But the guy that wrote Klingon Christmas Carol, he did it at this like this perfect alignment of planets where. Paramount was like, okay, fine, that's kind of cute. I don't think you could. I don't think you can get away with it now. No, I think that they're, they're, they're much closer on that IP stuff now. Yeah. So yeah, so I mean, you know, we're both uh, aficionados and have worked in and out of both Star Trek and, and Shakespeare. I think we know what we're talking yeah, about. Do you have a, uh... a disclaimer? I'm not. I'm not a Shakespearean scholar. I'm not a, a professor, uh, but I am a big fan and and have read a lot. And and as you and and, and you've performed a lot. So so maybe it, it, just admitting that will go in as fans and and aficionados. <laughs> I'm not either, and I'm kind of glad that I'm not. <laughs> I was actually on a – I sat on a panel about uh, elements of the fantastic in Shakespeare oh, yeah. at a recent con, and I wasn't exactly sure what it was going to be. Uh, and I was there just in my capacity as somebody who's been performing Shakespeare for like over 20 years. And it was basically just a bunch of – there was one guy that tried to control the panel. Uh -huh. You know the type. Yeah, I do. And he was going to tell us all about all the Shakespeare uh, books that he'd read and, and his interpretations. <laughs> and so I decided that my role would just be that of a jester like in a Shakespeare play. <laughs> You're the Falstaff of the panel. Yes, there to try to uh, poke holes in his ostentatiousness and also just share <laughs> uh, share anecdotes about my time on the Shakespeare stage. Nice. And uh, So yeah, I mean, that's uh, we're not taking this too seriously. No, no. Do you have a favorite play or, or a favorite uh, Shakespeare character? Uh, the Tempest is my favorite play. Um, mm. I really love it. And I, um, I, I, I feel like it's a lot more, I don't know, it's complex. Uh, I won't compare it to other plays. It, it's it's complex. There are other complex plays, obviously. Um, I love the fantasy element to it, but I also um, I, I love the human themes to it. Um, yeah. I, I, I like the family dynamics between Prospero and his daughter. I like the the relationship between the um, the, the storm washed characters who come up on shore and 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 then all the 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 fantastic characters on the island the, the, that uh, Prospero rules. Um, I, I don't know. The Tempest has always really struck a chord with me in terms of its um, story and its characters. Yeah. How about you? Do you have a favorite? Um, oh boy, I it changes all the time. You know, usually just the one that I'm reading at that time. Right. right. And I and I'd love to say something really dramatic. I think in the past I've said that. Um, uh, that Anthony and Cleopatra was my favorite, mm, yeah. uh, just because it's an overlooked tragedy. It's also a tragedy where everybody that you're rooting for, everybody's a jerk and an <laughs> asshole in that, in that play, and yet you find yourself really identifying with them right. and really uh, feeling the emotions that they are are torn up by. But I'd probably say I don't know, like Much Ado is just a pretty much a perfect comedy, right? So is that the one that uh, Joss Whedon did, is, or is that uh, was that Much Ado about nothing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah I just because I, I get I sometimes like I, I couldn't remember if uh, the the title of it. Um, but no, I just watched his version of that recently, and I really enjoyed that. Um, oh. And that that brought that play to life in a very different way for me than I had th than in previous experiences, um, uh, particularly the female characters. And um, 
this is this is a whole other podcast. Uh, this is for your uh, Shakespeare <laughs> podcast uh, that's solely about Shakespeare plays. But um, yeah. there was a fantastic article in the Atlantic recently that posited that what if Shakespeare was a woman? Um, mm. What what if the author of the plays? Um, was a woman who was then pretending to be a man publicly, you know, uh, you know, very Shakespearean love in a way. Um, <laughs> okay, sure. But 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 reading but reading his plays through a feminist point of view, and I, I got to tell you, when when you when you when you just give it a moment, and whether whether or not you're into the the who was Shakespeare conspiracy theories, or you know whether you believe that Shakespeare was a guy named William Shakespeare who wrote all his plays. If you just give it a moment, if you just say for a moment, I will, I will, I will re-examine what I know of Shakespeare and pretend that the author was a woman. It's fascinating. Like it's, yeah. it, it was a a real eye opener. And it, and for the listeners, I would recommend after the podcast is over that you go and look up the the story in the Atlantic about whether or not Shakespeare was a woman. I, I it just kind of blew my mind. And I, I got to tell you, I was happy to share it with my teenage daughter who's been reading Shakespeare in class and who is a diehard feminist herself. And it was, it was an eye opener for her and something interesting for her to explore as well. It's if, if feminism had existed back then, or at least had been codified as feminism, I think that he definitely would have been. And just talking about much ado about nothing. So much of the, there's amazing female characters in that. And so much of the conflict is them self-consciously struggling against their roles in society. Um, there's, I mean, there's, he's probably got some not so great, like representations in plays and oh, other sure. oh, areas. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, but just having a, a play like that, which where the women are literally not able to do what they want and the play's aware of that, the audience is aware of that. And even something like Taming of the Shrew, which is another one of my sure. um, favorites, uh, takes, people forget that it takes place inside of another play. Like right. it is not, it's allegorical and it's not supposed to be taken at face value necessarily. Um, yeah, I think he would definitely have his feminism card. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so anyway, it's just a, just an interesting thing that I read recently, uh, you know, uh, while I was thinking about this for the podcast and then suddenly this, this comes up, this discussion of, you know, was Shakespeare a woman? And, you know, there are many other, many theories about, uh, Shakespeare's identity and these, these other male writers he could have been, but that's the first time I'd heard that idea. And it was really intriguing. They're fun. Yeah. I mean, there's the, what, what was that like Roland Emmerich movie? I think Anonymous or something where they were trying to. Oh yeah, yeah. Figure yeah. out that uh, yeah. I mean, there's pictures of the guy. His signatures on stuff. I mean, I he's know. a real guy. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe Star Trek people wouldn't know that because they live almost Star Trek people live almost 400 years from our time, and they lived almost 800 years from the time of Shakespeare. Yeah. You know, if the new Picard series is set around the turn of the 25th century, around 2399, that's exactly 800 years from Shakespeare's Annus Mirabilis. You know, his like most successful right. year, 1599. He wrote Henry V. As you like it, and Julius Caesar, and perform them in one year, and it's eight hundred years away. If we in twenty nineteen were obsessed with theater from the say thirteenth century, there wouldn't be a lot to be obsessed with. It would be all mystery plays and wagon shows, right. uh, which are fine if you're religious, but it also <laughs> reflects the immense social changes over those four hundred or those eight hundred years of the prolifer- proliferation of non ecclesiastical ecclesiastical literature, um, the invention of the printing press, you know, the existence of a middle class to right. even go see these plays. Right. So what I want to know is, Star Trek, you're telling me that in 400 years after achieving world peace, 
eliminating scarcity, <laughs> hunger, exploring the cosmos, meeting countless alien races. Nothing yet has topped the works of a long dead white dude who was writing tales of kings and queens who also no longer exist in your right. world. Right, they're not watching The Wire and discussing that and doing scenes from The Wire in, oh, <laughs> in the holiday. <laughs> well, I think you've, you've, you've hit on the first point, which is uh, you need something that is, uh, at this point, Creative Commons, uh, not copyrighted. Yeah, but I would love it if uh, Picard was just popping in the old hollow DVDs and watching The Wire. That would be fantastic. You're amazing, right? Um, no, yeah, and, and presumably, like, the Folger Shakespeare Library, like, went underground during the wars in the 90s. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. You know, so there, there was something left when they... I was talking about that with uh, David, Dr. David Banks, who is a uh, internet sort of researcher, and uh, we were talking about why there's only classical music in the future. Right. And he was saying that, you know, the Spotify servers must have taken a direct hit, <laughs> like, in the uh, in the nuclear exchange of World War Three. Exactly. Yeah, when we know the truth, and you've already revealed it, and... And that is that those are what's available in the public domain for them right. to listen to and to talk about. Um, but I will argue that the use of Shakespeare in Star Trek is not merely because it is in the public domain, um, though we have seen them use plenty of other public domain works like Dickens, as we previously mentioned uh, in, right. in, in episodes. Um, but I do think that there are some real specific reasons that uh, that the original series and then TNG and and its um, its its brethren did use Star Trek. Uh, sorry, did use Shakespeare in Star Trek. And um, so I, I will throw a question out to you because then I think it will uh, inform our discussion going forward of of uh, Shakespeare in track. What so a lot of people call things Shakespearean, uh, right? And we're getting ready to talk about Shakespeare in track is. Star Trek Shakespearean, and what does that mean? What does what do you think it means to be Shakespearean? Oh, that is a great question, and I think that it dovetails into the debate over whether Star Trek is space opera uh -huh. or not. I don't think they're the same, but I think they're similar uh -huh. in that I think Shakespearean would mean <clears throat> something that would generally have an epic scope. Uh, it would deal with question we deal with human emotions uh chiefly uh, yep. before anything else um and it would deal with uh people gra uh, grappling with the, the truths of existence you know uh, life and death and ruling and being ruled um some you know there usually uh, possibly it would have to do with um a structure uh that it may or may not have um both in terms of a dramaturgic structure, you know, being five acts, sure. being verse, narrative, uh, but also like a narrative structure. The fact that the characters are um, in a in a rigid society, be it military or royal, right? I think that's a that's a big connection to Star Trek. You know, we're always seeing this is military fiction essentially. Like we are seeing characters who are part of a military organization, um, at least up to this point. You know, Picard, we don't know, um, and also just um, having a sense of wonder and uh, and of whimsy and, and of and of humor um, yeah. amongst it all. It's not just this dire, dour uh, sort of affair. Right, right. I, I love it. Yeah, I would agree. Um, to me, the things I wrote down to answer that question were uh, fully developed characters, complex family and political dynamics. Um, it may be about family, but also the direction of a society. When we, we not not obviously not every Shakespeare play is like this, but when we call something Shakespearean, I think we often mean that. You know that all the things that happen have a very personal, um, a, a very 
they're, they're very personal to the characters, but they also have larger impact on the society at large. You talked about this. Right. There's loyalty. Right. There's betrayal. It, it goes it, – it's personal, but it goes beyond the personal. Um, mm-hmm. And I – and I think that I think that TNG embraces that is I, I think that TNG is more Shakespearean than the original series um, in that regard. But I do think obviously that the original series has many many connections to 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 Shakespeare. They they made tons of allusions and many outright um, not just allusions but just outright took stuff from Shakespeare. Uh, right. But. Uh, no, I, I think so. I was I was reading more. I was thinking about this and reading more about this in preparation for the podcast. And there's some really interesting ideas about about Star Trek and Shakespeare. Um, and one of those is that 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 Shakespeare in general, Americans view Shakespeare perhaps as a backup that that there's been a that there's been a pull to maybe Americanize Shakespeare. And I don't mean change Shakespeare, but claim him as our own. We're obviously, <laughs> I know, right. Obviously he's, he's English and, um, uh, and we started there, but we're not English, but there's this, <laughs> I, yeah, where there's this idea that, um, like the, I was just mentioning the Folger, Folger, uh, Shakespeare library that's in right. Washington, right? That's yeah. in Washington DC where we started to collect Shakespeare. And, um, the, there were, there were publicly, uh, financed, uh, no, sorry, not public. There were there were cor- American corporations financed Shakespearean productions back in the early days of television, and, and it felt like this sort of claiming of Shakespeare as our own. And there are people who argue that that idea of the Shakespearean hero, the the male hero in particular, is exactly mm. what Kirk is in the in the original series. That that the that we, you and I have talked about this, and you've talked about this with multiple people on your podcast about how Star Trek is America in space, right? It's like it's like the United <laughs> yeah. States. It's the United States going off and and being the United States in space. And so there's there's this kind of feeling like, well, if Shakespeare, if we can claim Shakespeare as our own, then then maybe maybe Kirk is a Shakespearean hero, and certainly throughout the original series, he takes on the role of of some actual characters from Shakespeare in different in different episodes. Um, yeah. So I think that in some ways, you know, the original series is more about the Americanization of Shakespeare and and the idea of the American hero. And then when you get to TNG, I think the other side of it is I think when a lot of people refer to something as Shakespearean, it's not just all that stuff we talked about with plot and character and setting. I think also a lot of people just use it as a shorthand for high culture. Right. And, well, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, like, oh, that's very Shakespearean, meaning, you know, it's it's not it's it's not um, fluff. And yeah. I think that when TNG came along, there was a real desire to be connected to the past, its own past, Star Trek's past, but also to distance itself from that past. You know, you had you had people within the TNG writing room saying no references to the old show. Like not yeah. for not for a long time did they start to reference the old show, and yeah. um, and I think that part of that is we're higher culture. Like we are, like Star Trek. We love Star Trek. That's why we're doing another Star Trek. But that was the sixty. That was sixty science fiction, 
and we are 90s science fiction. Like we are, we are the 80s and 90s. We've learned so much in 20 years, you know. Um, and and right. we're more highbrow than that. And um, a- along with the casting of a Shakespearean actor to be yeah. their captain. So yeah. I think that by the time you get to TNG, that idea of the American hero is is not the big part of it. And instead, it's more about that human condition that we talked about. And as you said. Star Trek is about living within a structured society. You're on a ship, yeah. you have rules, you have the Federation, you have the prime directive. So if if Shakespeare was writing 400 years ago, for them 800 years ago, about, about what it is to be human and making human decisions based, you know, like Shakespeare was like, I guess maybe one of the first people to realize we don't act logically. We, we or to, to write about this, we don't um, we we know what's right logically, but we still act on our human emotions and our human passions. And T and G is kind of like how do we how do we manage that in this very structured society? Um, you'd think that t- that the original series would be that with Spock versus Kirk, you know, like the the logical versus the illogical. But it was so much more about Kirk just getting out there and being the hero. Whereas in T and G. Patrick Stewart and and the other character, you know, like I mean, you know, uh, Picard and the other characters, they have to, they have to suppress their human passions and their emotions to act yes. within this, you know, and, and they are more, they're, they're they're more like Spock than Kirk was, and uh, in the future, anyway, I'm I'm going off on a long tangent here, but I feel like there's, that each of the shows, each of the eras, has treated, has taken Shakespeare and and I think borrowed different things for different purposes. Uh, you must read Shakespeare in the original American, by the way. <laughs> Going off that idea of st- the Federation being Space America, yeah. I-, I think it's it's interesting to note. It's something we've touched upon uh, in this uh, podcast, too. But the lives of the characters in these Trek stories, or at least their interests, have the character of a classical education a western education you know they're always reading shakespeare or at least great european writers and they're going to hear string quartets they're they're playing racquetball (laughs) and i have to wonder like how much i mean maybe this is just a fad maybe like right actually we've seen maybe not we've seen like a 200 year span of the federation in the series that we've seen and it's almost all the same and of course i think the practical uh, answer to that, you know, is our character's love of classical theater and art reflects the sensibilities and education of the mainly white male writers of right. the various series. Um, you know, it's art with an H, as you pointed out. Like <laughs> right. we are, this is serious. Cue the masterpiece theater theme. Right. And we never see. It's a real tragedy that we never see anybody uh, going to a traditional dance or rehearsing no theater. Yeah. Um, we just got a rap song on Discovery <laughs> and uh, and some Reverend Al Green. And of course, the problem behind this is that, you know, white guys shouldn't trying to be uh, shouldn't be trying to tell these stories probably right, right. Uh, but we're going to need some non-white writers if we're going to get stories like this um and characters loving art and culture outside of you know, what uh, an old white man on a episode of masterpiece theater would enjoy right and it, you see you see as star trek uh as the series as the different series plural go on there's less shakespeare in ds9 there's almost none in Voyager, like in terms of references or that, I mean, when you compare the number of heavy handed references in TOS and TNG to the later shows, it's night and day. Like there's very few of those there. Enterprise has almost none. Uh, and, And Discovery only has 
a couple of nods to it. And, and maybe it's like you're saying, as the, as the writing room changed and it went from being all white dudes in the writing room, with some exceptions, but mostly still white dudes in the writing room, that the idea of what high culture is, the idea of what art is, changed and those references changed yeah um the there are 17 i believe uh, episodes amongst the various series that directly share uh, their title as a, as a line directly from uh shakespeare or an illusion okay uh not counting um the most recent uh finale of discovery such sweet sorrow which is a two-parter so yeah i think that that definitely checks out uh, in terms of seeing a, a change in the composition plus i mean what tom paris is gonna read shakespeare I don't think he's going to be on the holodeck in tights. He's got other things to do. But right. I think it is interesting that, we, like you said, we go from TOS, which it seems chiefly obsessed with it at times, yes. to having the direct spawn of that, a captain who literally you know, came up in the RSC right. and is hanging out with Data, you know, doing star, uh, Shakespeare on the holodeck all the right. time, to uh, just playing a Fuji song and some Al Green, <laughs> <laughs> which I love, uh, yeah. on Discovery. Yeah. It's a lot different. Uh, the whitest guy of them all was probably Willie Shakespeare. Um, but despite that, <laughs> he was a pretty good writer. Uh, and the connection, this connection between Shakespeare and Star Trek, or at least the vocabulary and the syntax they share, maybe we're not blowing anybody's minds to point this out. But for me, I've spent so much of my life watching Star Trek and being immersed in Shakespeare and classical literature, I feel like I'm just realizing it now. It's like living in the city and not hearing the constant sound of traffic and, and noise and activity until your friend from the suburbs uh, points it out. Like seeing all the Shakespeare that's in Trek? Yeah. Yeah, there, it, there's so much of it. And, and, and I, when you approached me about this, I thought, oh, sure, I know, I know some, some references to Shakespeare and Trek. And then when I started really looking into it, I was like, oh my gosh, there's so Whoa. many more than I remembered. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. And, and ju from just casual, like you said, some titles that are just borrowed from Shakespeare, which is a long, long tradition uh, in all of literature, um, to lines that are that are just popped off by somebody or in, entire wholesale plots that are borrowed, um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, or, or actual scenes that are played out from Shakespeare, like in TNG. So, um, yeah, it's, it, you know, it, it culminates, of course, um, with Star Trek six, the movie, um, where, <laughs> yes. where, you know, they basically just said, how many Shakespeare references can we put into this? Can we cram into this? Um, and that's kind of like the, the last hurrah for, for Shakespeare and Star Trek. It seems like the, the last big hurrah. Um, and I'd I'm, say that like, I'd say Nick Meyer was on a time crunch, I know, uh, right? <laughs> so, but, but he wrote uh, Star Trek two in like, 10 days. Right. So we know he can write well fast. I right. think he definitely just really wanted to hit home that uh, that idea of I read that he I read that he was worried about how many Shakespeare references he was putting in. Oh, really? And then, yeah, I know, right? <laughs> like he actually thought of it and then they cast Christopher Plummer and yes. he was like Forget it. I'm putting them all in. Like I'm gonna have yeah. Christopher. I want to hear Christopher Plummer say everything. So, yeah, and some of, some of Trek's greatest uh, guest stars too have been uh, luminaries in Shakespeare. People uh, like David Warner and oh, of course sure. Christopher Plummer. Uh, Gene Simmons, who played Admiral Satie in the Drumhead, played Ophelia in Laurence Olivier's Hamlet. Oh, I did not know that. That's great. Yeah, That's great. And I so I think that there is um, an artistic. Uh, motivation behind this there's also just a practical one i mean if you're going to go out and get let's get the best actor to play this role sure. they're probably somebody who has a tradition in stage or experience with shakespeare 
But unlike, uh, say, I don't know, Friends or a show that is set <laughs> within a specific world and has to accomplish something specific, Star Trek is also something of a blank canvas that you can draw whatever you want on. Right. But they didn't go to Moliere. They went to Shakespeare. Right. Well, again, I think it's a cultural touchstone for American society. And um, yeah. and, and I think America had been co-opting Shakespeare as much as they could. Um, and I, I wanted to point out, um, I think that our discussion of Shakespeare in Trek actually starts before Star Trek. I think it starts with Forbidden Planet. And, yeah. uh, you know, Forbidden Planet, uh, Roddenberry said in his autobiography, was a huge inspiration for Star Trek. You have a group of people in a galactic federation who land on a planet and they take care of the problem of the day, which is this guy who has... Uh, a, a daughter and and he's on this planet with this this monster that keeps attacking people and um, it, it's it's very loosely the tempest but mashed with science fiction and um, you know I, I think that 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 that's proto Star Trek in in so many ways it is it is the it's the Americans in space coming in to take care of a problem but it's, it's Leslie Nielsen it's Leslie Nielsen <laughs> you gotta love it and um, and it's mashed up with Shakespeare to give it some some uh, cultural cachet. And so uh, I think that we go all the way back to that and you see science fiction taking on uh, Shakespeare to to legitimize itself. And I, th and I think that that's kind of where we begin even with Star Trek and Shakespeare. That's interesting. We talked about uh, Forbidden Planet actually recently on my other Star Trek show, uh, Backtracking, where we talk about the uh, inspirations behind classic Trek episodes. And we talked about uh, how, yeah, you know, the Forbidden Planet is clearly uh, an inspiration or inspired by the Tempest. Um, but also the Voyager episode, uh, Oasis, is sort of inspired mm. by the Tempest. And sure. then you've got a similar situation, a guy protecting his daughter and using holograms instead of spirits. But I think it goes to your point about it being sometimes just... Um, wallpaper, you know, or just being uh, a sort of uninspired uh, inspiration or a chance to do something right. that, that feels classical. Right. Because there's an anecdote from that episode. Um, Rene Aubergenois plays the, uh, I think, the father character in that episode. Hmm. And while they were um, uh, shooting the episode, uh, they were sort of talking about, um, didn't you guys do an episode like this on DS9, <laughs> where there's a holographic village that they go to, and there's one guy who's real, and he's programmed this entire village to entertain his daughter. And he's like, oh, yeah, I guess we did. <laughs> so even even Star Trek isn't necessarily paying attention, but right. knows we want to do something that's sort of uh, profound, or at least shallowly profound. Let's do a Shakespeare. Right, right, right. I, and I think, and and it's strange the way that they'll also bring it in in, in things that I don't think match. You know, um, mm. Thine Own Self is the Data episode where he um, he's uh, on the planet, and I guess uh, that's the one where he um, loses his memory of who he is. And, um, yes. And, and I can't figure out for the life of, like, Thine Own Self is a reference to Shakespeare, or at least it's yeah. taken from Shakespeare, but it really doesn't have any kind of connection to... No. The actual Shakespeare line, you know what I'm saying? It's it's where the the words mean something different to the episode than it did in the original Shakespeare. And even that uh, line taken from Hamlet is being spoken by one of the uh, most false, right? Uh, sort of deceptive right? characters. To he's yeah. saying to the known by selfie true, like everything he's saying is, is he's full perverse. of crap. Right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So right. it's a yeah. weird it's a weird way to take those words and use them for a great episode, but I can't figure out why in the world you'd use that title for it. 
Yeah, it's a lot different than the times that we see characters explicitly performing or studying Shakespeare in um, in Star Trek shows. Um, there's uh, there's a great episode, one of my favorite episodes of TNG, uh, where they are rehearsing. Uh, Data is playing Henry V. Oh yeah, and they're rehearsing a scene, and it's a scene that literally <laughs> uh, Patrick Stewart is sort of like observing uh, and as Captain Picard, but he's also literally in the scene. He's yeah, playing he's Michael the other Collins. character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, in the uh, in the uh, nighttime camp scene in Henry V, <laughs> which is so it's literally just an in joke. Like uh, yeah. my my uh, partner on backtracking, we were talking about this episode, and he's like, "Is that is Data? Did he program him to?" And I'm like, "Don't worry about it. It's just a reference to the fact that uh, Patrick Stewart played Henry V. It's right. fine. It's fine. That's so funny. But that is so important because that what's being explored in that scene, you know, the idea of a king's responsibility to those that he rules over and who he leads into battle." battle will become very important is basically the central conflict of the episode of the defector. Right. Right. And so I love when they can do that when they're where they're not just referencing Shakespeare to to high class the joint up a little bit. Instead right. when they're when they're saying, "Wait, we have a story that that takes place in Star Trek's world. We're not borrowing a story from Shakespeare and putting a Star Trek veneer on it. We have a story that really takes place in this world that has Shakespearean undertones." And yeah. we, we want to we want to pull in those references to it to say, look, we're telling a story that is that is very, very old and older than Shakespeare even. And that this is going to continue. But but that our world has this this story in it, too. Uh, I, that's my favorite use, uh, I think, of of Shakespeare in track. It's a, a human truth that applies uh, in this world as well as in Shakespeare's exactly. time. Exactly. That, 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 that these are, and I think that's one of the reasons that Shakespeare continues to be studied and performed and remixed is that he really was able to get at in many, many of his plays um, basic human uh, relationships and, and situations and emotions. And those still resonate today. There's a reason that Romeo and Juliet is read by so many schools when kids are teenagers, because that, <laughs> that same burning passion that they have for each other is the same burning passion that teenagers have had in every single generation. They may not yeah. you know, kill themselves over it, thankfully, but, but they, but they still feel that like, I just met you yesterday and I'm going to spend the rest of my life with you. You know, that kind of, that 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 kind of falling into that romance and being so consumed by it that you can't see anything else. There are a plenty of uh, examples of Shakespeare finding its way into other cultures, uh, like alien cultures, um, through cross pollination, I suppose, uh, of humanity uh, going out amongst the stars and bringing our wire DVDs with us. Only in this case, <laughs> it's our our Folgers, and uh, you know, of course, the most famous. We've already mentioned the most famous example. Um, you know, reading Star uh, Shakespeare and the original Klingon. Right. Yeah. yeah. And the, um, <laughs> it gives an interesting sort of uh, connotation to Chang's, uh, you know, interjections of Shakespeare in that he's he mocking uh, Captain Kirk. Is he mocking yeah. human culture uh, in that in, when he does that? Well, and he's also misinterpreting it really badly. Like, uh, and, yeah. and maybe that's maybe that's like the Klingon Christmas Carol. I mean, maybe it's it's taking <laughs> you know, it, it's how they would see the story. But, but you know, when he says you know to the undiscovered country, and they're all kind of looking at him like you you know that means death, right? I mean, like right. we're we're all we all read Shakespeare. That means death. And he's like, no, the future. And it's like, okay, yeah, right, sure, that's the future. Um, you know, like, like, is he is he mocking them? Is he saying 
the future is we're all going to die. Like this is never going to be peaceful, you know, or is he, is he misinterpreting in it? Or is it, is this how, is he offering an alternative interpretation? Was this his college thesis? I have a different interpretation of what the undiscovered country is. And, um, you know, so it's, it's intriguing to me the way that they use it. And I like in that moment, how everybody kind of looks at him strangely, like, like that's not, that's not right. Um, and- yeah, so much of that film, too, is concerned with putting Kirk and crew on trial for yeah. being you know, racist, essentially. Yeah, and I think right. it would I think it would fit in the film. But I think it's good that the film doesn't take the chance to sort of undercut. Like if we find out that Chang just has a uh, quote a day calendar or a Bartlett's <laughs> he's been kind of going through, right. you know what I mean? Like him not understanding the context uh, could be cultural uh, there. You'd have some scene where. Kirk gives him the real, you know, the real meaning or implication of that line and kind of owns him. Instead, we get Kirk, <laughs> instead we get Qu- Kirk quoting Hitler to him, right. which is uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, more, more on Incredibly point thematically. So. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. So I, 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 I do like when, like, I, again, my favorite uses of, of Shakespeare and Trek are a little bit more subtle than that. A little bit more where, uh, or like when we discussed I- I- in the episode uh, about um, about DS Nine, that where where the, um, the the die is cast and, and that sort of thing, the the allusions to to Caesar, and then the subtlety of renaming the new um, the new runabout the Rubicon, like yeah. like that's some really nice sort of like see what we did there. We know our Shakespeare, and we're not. We're not going to have Chang quote it, you know, but well, I mean, right. I guess they, they did have they did have Garrick and, and Bashir quoting it literally in the episode. But um, yeah, but it's so great because it begins with, Gar- you know, Bashir, who is a young guy and sort of naive himself, right. but really likes this story and pushes it on Garrick. And Garrick is somebody who comes from a completely different culture and is like, uh, that's cute. But, you know, we have our own things that we do. Right. And then at the the literal climax, you know, the, yeah. the, the literal end of the second episode not only sort of serving his uh, his erstwhile <laughs> mentor, but also coming to a realization about he's like, oh yeah, that was a really good line. Right, <laughs> like I got, right. I get that. Yeah, the fault, dear Tate, <laughs> is not in our stars, but in ourselves, and it's a really yeah. great moment. Um, and and look, we could also view Bashir and that idealistic Bashir as the the very very much the embodiment of the original series, like. He he sees, mm. you know, like maybe Shakespeare, like if you asked him, if you pressed him, Shakespeare is an, you know, is is more about that heroic space, that space hero. Uh, yeah. And and Garrick, his immediate response is, oh, no, 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 there's no heroes, dude. Right. I mean, like Garrick is definitely right. an antihero and sees that. Um, but then at the He's end. He's seen ambition. That's The right. type of ambition you see in those Shakespeare characters. That's yeah, right. First yeah. hand. And so for him, the there there are he he sees the villains in Shakespeare, where maybe Bashir sees the heroes, um, yeah. and uh, and where the original series sees the heroes. Um, you know, even though there's a there's an episode where uh, in the original series uh, where Kirk is essentially uh, Macbeth, and um, um, oh, it's in Cat's Paw, which is a pretty terrible episode, but uh, <laughs> but he's essentially. He's essentially Macbeth here, but every like just like in this episode and in every other episode in which he plays a character who is arguably pulled right from Shakespeare, he wins. And what I mean is where Macbeth is a tragic figure and yeah. and is led down the wrong led down or goes down the wrong path, Kirk doesn't because he's the hero, right? He can be Macbeth in an episode and not 
lose, right? And not yeah. and not kill the king. Um, he so like that's the old show. The old show says we can take every character, villain or hero, from from Shakespeare and turn them into a hero. And I think that TNG and DS9 and its following uh, series kind of said, well, let's let's talk about maybe what it is to be a hero and a villain, particularly Deep Space Nine. Yeah, I don't think that Shakespeare was a nihilist. I do no. think that he was a realist. And I think the thing that you get in this, uh, in, in Star Trek versus Shakespeare, is that you can have tragic characters, they can have tragic flaws, but in Star Trek, they're never fatal flaws. Do you know right. what I mean? They're never, That's right. They're never led fully to destruction because of this... This idea that the series has both been inspired by and saddled with of Gene Roddenberry's that humanity right. would ultimately triumph. And I think utopian fiction is important. It's more important than ever. But it does stop short of the sort of self-destruction that a lot of Shakespeare heroes and villains find themselves in uh, up to maybe and, and including D- Discovery where you have a character like Michael Burnham who does do something that is self-destructive. And does come back and is redeemed, but is it redeemed. takes an entire season of TV. Right, right. Instead of the uh, the you know coming to the precipice of of an irredeemable action, um, right? You know, <laughs> no, and, I won't kill him. Yeah. Right, I will right, argue, yeah. and, and and I want to I want to get this out there because it's it's an episode that. Um, is is only tangentially connected to Shakespeare if you if you take the title, uh, but the title pre-exists really Shakespeare even, but that sins of the father. And mm. I think I will I will make an argument that TNG's sins of the father, where where Worf um, we we be, we begin basically this larger story of um, uh, we begin to examine in detail this larger story of the sacrifice that Worf's father made for the Klingon Empire and, and the and and the sacrifices he and his family will continue to make. That is, I think, the most Shakespearean episode of Star Trek, and yeah, wow. that I, I will put that out there. I think that if we if we take that definition that you and I talked about earlier of complex characters, of family struggles, of political struggles, if if that is our definition of Shakespearean, then I would argue that more than the episodes where they literally rip off a plot from Shakespeare, that this yeah. one is truly Shakespearean, and that here's consider this. We talked about getting to that precipice. That's what made me think of it. And and pulling back, Worf goes right over it. He like he plunges his batleth into into <laughs> Durant, right? I mean, yeah. like this is a character who's just like I'm gonna kill the guy that killed my wife, and he's acting in a very personal, uh, I will say, human way. He's obviously a Klingon, but but we're talking about all the varieties of human experience and all the aliens in Star Trek, and yeah. um and. I, if we again, if we take this, um, you know, like I don't think Roddenberry would have dug that. Like, like this is him, like killing another person on the Enterprise. And man, when Picard pulls him, and he's like, "You can't do that!" Like you, like, yeah. like we're the Federation. You're a Federation officer. You can't kill somebody on our ship. And yet he does. <laughs> yeah. And he does. Yeah, how long is the Klingon Hamlet? It must be real short, right? I know. Like, <laughs> He's like, wait, Hamlet's my uncle just killed, like, my uncle killed there my dad. Is. Let's, let's go get him. You know, <laughs> yeah. right. you know? Um, no, it totally, it's a bloodbath in the first act. And, um, and he kills the mom and, you know, like, <laughs> right, everybody yeah, would be right. dead. That, that would be it. It wouldn't be Horatio <laughs> standing there with Fortinbras. It'd be at the end. It'd be Hamlet with his bat, bloody batless standing over everybody in the castle. Um, yeah. But no, I, I, I think that if you, again, if you take that definition of Shakespearean as all those complicated things, um, I think that that episode 
sins of the father, which uh, again, the, t- the title could arguably be taken from Merchant of Venice, although the idea of sins of the father goes uh, way, way back to, the, to even the Bible. Um, sure. Like, I think that this is the most Shakespearean in its scope and, and in mm-hmm. its human drama. Klingon drama, if you will. Uh, I I agree. Uh, I agree that it's your favorite. Uh, my, <laughs> my favorite is probably still uh, one of the most explicit, uh, The Conscience of the King. Sure. An episode that, had they invented meta in the 60s? I don't know. But not, itself yeah. is just, is so self-aware and yet so successful at doing what it does yes. and presenting a quandary for, uh, for I mean, I think they're doing... They're doing Macbeth in the beginning of the play, and then I think they do Hamlet at the end, but presenting a position for Kirk that is so similar uh, to Hamlet's, but yet is fits into their world and presenting a character uh, like uh, Caridian or I guess uh, Kodos the Executioner. Right. um, Who's literally, there's the most Shakespeare-esque, like if you listen to the episode, and I I did at one point, I don't think they're actually talking in iambic pentameter, but it's it's awfully close. I think the writers definitely made an effort to make it sound that way. And you've got that scene where he's confronting him and it just, it feels so Shakespearean and Kirk's asking him like, well, what do you want me to do? Like I need, I'm, I, you should die for what you did right. if you're the person that you say you are. And then you even got, you even got the side characters. This is just a structure of drama where you've got the main thing going on. And you've got other characters commenting on it, but like Kirk and, or excuse me, uh, Spock and McCoy become almost <laughs> more than they, <laughs> more uh, Spock and McCoy than they usually are. Right. Uh, because Spock becomes almost a scheming Iago-esque figure. Right. Who's, been watching Kirk's actions and thinking, oh, well, we've got to stop him if something is going wrong here. And McCoy is just getting hammered like <laughs> Baraccio or a Dogberry type character. And he's right. like, ah, don't worry about that. Yeah. yeah, it's just, as somebody who just, I, I, my experience with Star Trek and Shakespeare and just seeing that, like for me, that is so perfect. Not a great ending to the episode. Uh, and no, no, unlike yeah. Shakespeare, the yeah. female character is very un- underwritten and underdeveloped. Sure. Uh, but. Of course. And, and But you, you do have the... You do. Uh, I, if I'm not wrong, they actually use the Hamlet scene trying to catch the conscience of the uh, the murderer. I mean, they're mm, they're mm. they're they're trying to 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 get at, or you know, they're trying to expose him through the scene, and um and 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 that you know that that's so meta as you point out, and um, <laughs> uh and I love too that they're just on the Enterprise doing a play with like <laughs> wooden flats, I like know, at right? one point. Kirk and uh, Riley are behind the scenes, and it's that thing where we want to stop a murderer, but we don't want to interrupt the play. So it's like, shh, be quiet. Right, I know. Like, they've got a whole bunch of wood stocked up in the cargo bay to build <laughs> right. some flats out of. You know, they, they yeah. Um, I, it's pre-holodeck, so I guess, you know, you bring some sets for, for the for – the, uh, Oh, yes. For the holiday musical, right? Yeah. Travel um, sets, yeah. So, uh, no, uh, I, I had a similar thing. So just to pull this back to, to my, star, my, uh, my Shakespeare-inspired mysteries – uh, when I did Hamlet, I had to figure out a way to turn that that scene, that that theater scene, into something mm-hmm. that worked in the present day. Because let's face it, I mean, uh, my well, my, my original version was this: that uh, the 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 characters get everybody together in the family theater, like that that's a rich family, and they've got this kind of theater with you know uh, comfy chairs and a big TV screen, and and they're going to watch The Lion King, and they're gonna uh. they're gonna wait until you know like Scar kills Mufasa and they're going to watch the, the uh, uncle and see if he reacts in a weird way. Right. I, I yeah. thought that, I thought this was pretty funny. And so I turned it into my editor and she's like, yeah, this, like this would never work. Like, <laughs> like no, no real killer in the present day is going to get freaked out by the lion King. And I'm like, okay, 
this is a fair point. This is a fair point. So I actually changed it to where uh, they're doing a, a, a community theater version of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead in town. And um, they, they, it's not just trying to catch the conscience of the king through watching it. They actually try to set him up in it. Like there's a, anyway, I won't get into it, but, but I, I, I use the same kind of setting, but, but one of the challenges, if you're going to adapt Shakespeare into a present day story is we take a lot of things for granted because Shakespeare's characters did them right. Like, so, yeah. so like, uh, the King can stand up, uh, King Claudius can stand up shaking and, and nervous when he watches, um, a, a murder on stage, uh, in, in a, in a play in his castle, because that's what Shakespeare wrote 400 years ago. And, and we still buy that. Right. <laughs> yeah, and and yeah. because we're so used to it, if you put that into a modern setting, it doesn't work. And so whenever Star Trek or anybody else adapts Shakespeare, you can't, you can't steal wholesale from Shakespeare. You've got to, you've also got to find modern motivations for the yeah. reasons that the characters do those things. And I think they do that really, really well in the conscience of the King. It reminds me of the Hamlet by Ethan Hawke that oh, came out right. I yeah, think yeah. in like 2000 or so. And they're doing that play scene. And the idea is, is that Ethan Hawke as Hamlet is, I don't know, he's like a New York avant-garde film right. director or right. uh, play director. And they're doing the scene and he's like screaming at everybody in the audience as the scene is going <laughs> on. And the scene would just stop. It's such a weird trope that keeps getting written into things. And I'm not sure if it's like theater and film people writing it, right. but audiences seem to understand it. Uh, in like the Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, there's a entire assassination scene going on while an opera's going on. And it's right. like Tom Cruise just fire two shots in the air and clear like the theater out. Right. Why are you like, no, don't, don't disturb the show. Uh, right. As a, as an actor myself, like I understand that. Like I've been involved in some <laughs> crazy situations while a show was going on uh, in right. front of the curtain. But why does it like an American film going public, like identify with that? It, there must be something human about that. Um, I like the fact that you had, to, this is proof that Shakespeare had no editor, but the audience, right. because uh, it also probably wouldn't have worked in his time, but I guess the people bought it. They just bought it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I like that you had to downgrade it or perhaps upgrade it or side grade it to <laughs> Rosencrantz and Gilster. You could have changed it to Strange Brew, you know? I, like could, if, I should uh, have. I should. Whatever Max Van Sydow's doing, you know, we're going to look yeah. at him and see if they're responding. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so we, there, there are all kinds of references in the original series. You've got Dagger of the Mind. You've got Conscious yeah. of the King. All our yesterdays, which would have been a great final episode if it wasn't followed by turnabout intruder um oh, like man. it would have been a great title for a last episode i mean like all our yesterdays i mean that's really nice um you know uh by any other name who gods destroy um you've got you've got literal shakespeare if if, yeah. you, if flint is to be believed right exactly um and I love that Flint is like every white guy that ever made something is Flint. It's <laughs> all right. Western yeah. culture. He did yeah. all the things. He did all. The things. <laughs> yeah. Um, so um, and uh, we've got the um, the plot of Taming of the Shrew and Elan of Troyes. Oh, uh, boy. And that shows uh, we were talking about Shakespeare's yeah. feminist card before. I think that that is even greater evidence for his feminist card because Trek tries to do it right. in the semi-liberated 60s and still doesn't get it. Like totally they just failed. make a joke out of that character. Yeah. 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 Um, I do like the commentary, a little bit of uh, spot commentary uh, in Cat's Paw. Uh, when the the witches or those characters are like Captain Kirk, go, Captain Kirk, go back, go back. Remember the curse. Wind shall yeah. rise and fog descend. So leave here all or meet your end. And he's like Spock, comment. And Spock says, "Very bad poetry, Captain." 
And he's, <laughs> I'm more useful comment, Mr. Schmock. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's some great stuff. I mean, that that's at least the the writers being like, yeah, we we're not Shakespeare. <laughs> like we 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 totally muffed that one, but we're just gonna keep we're just gonna lampshade that and move on. Well, Kirk must have not uh, told anybody that Flint claimed to be all those famous right, people right. because it would have totally changed our perceptions, I think, because all the times that Picard quotes Shakespeare to talk, you know, literally about the the nobility of man when he's uh, talking with Q, like if it was just some immortal alien that wrote all those plays, <laughs> it would change it a little bit. That would have been so cool if in TNG he would say like, like our immortal bard Flint once said, you know, and, right. then, <laughs> and it was just like a reference to like the fact that he had been outed by Kirk. That would be really great. Uh, the, yeah. Finally, the mystery of who who is Shakespeare was solved. <laughs> uh, but then, of course, we get to TNG, and there's all kinds of references. But again, here, a lot of time they're performed, or or or, or really have a stronger, like a a, a strong but subtle connection uh, to yeah. things. Um, you know, um, uh, in Measure of a Man, it feels very Shakespearean to examine, um, you know, what it is to be human. Uh, yeah. and that sort of thing. Again, not a plot from Shakespeare, but, but pulling no. that in. Um, so anyway, there's, there's all kinds of other references all the way through. Uh, maybe one of the best title uses is past prologue in, uh, DS nine. Um, yeah. because in that context, the quote is really saying like everything that's come before now informs the decision you're about to make, right? Like, yeah. Like that's the context of the Shakespeare quote. And really what DS9 is showing us is everything that came up and like everything that came before you like influences who you are and what you're doing in the future. And uh, yeah. I thought that was a really nice use of a quote where it, it actually really fits. Um, and considering where DS9 goes, yes. it's, that's the second episode of DS9. Right. So, right. you know, right after the first one named for literally like th this is who the character is, Emissary, the first right. chance they got to make a creative choice, they're like, let's do Shakespeare. Pass right. for luck. Yeah. Yeah. And, <laughs> and they just own it and um, and then have some more fun ones. Uh, we've talked about the Dias cast. The Dogs of War is a really nice um, uh, use of that. Um, and once more into the breach, the the episode um, where Kor wants to die in battle. I mean, that's yeah. that's a really nice way of taking that um, that sort of Agincourt. Like we're we're probably all gonna die, but let's do this kind of speech. You know, um, yeah. your, your grandkids are gonna tell stories of this day kind of a speech, and um, it's good stuff. I think it's fascinating that we find out in Enterprise uh, when they go to the Mirror Universe or when we see the Mirror Universe, Flocks uh, lets us know that Shakespeare in the Mirror Universe is nearly identical or at least very similar to yeah. Shakespeare in our universe. And that's something that I think that you throw off because you've got a cool double episode with, uh, you know, the Defiant going around and people shooting things and uh, evil goatees. But the implications of that are staggering. Like, yeah. what does that mean? Like, is he some axis in between our universes or are the truths, the truths divorced from uh, morality so true mm. uh, in his plays and in his work that they would remain true in a world that was oriented upside down. towards evil yeah, instead it's of a, good. It's an upside yeah. down world. I mean, it, 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 and so uh, is it like Doctor Who in one of those fixed points in time that you can't change? You know, the, <laughs> sure. One of those one of those immutable things. But I like I like your idea that um, that the truths are so are so universal that they transcend even an upside down evil world. Um, yeah. 
that that's really interesting. And uh, one of the things that Trek continues to show with the mirror universe is that th for all its fun and camp, um, there are people within it who are fighting back and who are um, who are trying to to make things right. I mean, there, there there's the man in the high castle somewhere who's who's trying to. Um, still change change the world even though it's evil um and so maybe maybe shakespeare was a was an underground writer who published anonymously and they kept trying to track him down and kill him but his pamphlets were uh his, his uh uh his 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 portfolios were were spread through the underground or something like that i don't know it would be interesting and then and then co-opted by co-opted by um the the predominant culture uh, and 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 changed. I don't know. Uh, it, it would be uh, it would be a fun episode to do, but nobody but us would care. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that that's. I don't think that's totally okay, maybe true. Maybe five or six other people. It's a fascinating idea, and I, I'm I'm kind of embarrassed. I'm acquainted with um, so many of the authors uh, of Star Trek novels who wrote in the mirror universe. You know, there's a whole slew of mirror universe novels yeah. where they kind of continue that story, and I don't know if they've done that, but yeah. doing doing a a dick doing a, a man in the high castle seems like that would be I, um, just a no brainer. But then again, we're always going to the mirror universe. You know, there's always people from the prime universe right. slipping in there and causing trouble. So maybe they are the men and women in the high castle. Maybe that that's it. Maybe they're the ones who are the, you know, the, the ones saying it's, it doesn't have to be like this. Our world they're is the like heavy lying grass, grasshoppers. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, um, I think we've done a pretty good job. Uh, maybe our revels are now ended. Um, but thanks so much for joining me. Uh, I guess I should give you a chance to say anything uh, that you uh, want to say still. That We, we covered a lot uh, of it. I, I just think that um, I'm really fascinated by this idea that, um, that the old series is maybe the Shakespearean hero. And um, and that the, the, the TNG is more about the human condition. And the big question I have there is... Um, so, the really I, I've talked about this before that Star Trek is really an Edison odd. I mean, it's the kind of story where uh, technology, yes. the, the, the scientist and technologists win, techno and technology win. And um, and what kind of comment? How would Shakespeare see that? Um, how would how would he look on TNG in a world where we're asked to suppress our human emotions and and instincts? And go with what is logical, and 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 what and and win the day with technology. Um, I wonder. I wonder. Would Shakespeare like TOS or TNG better? What do you think? Hmm. I think that he would probably like TNG because they keep quoting him. <laughs> you know, he was. It's <laughs> uh, like all the royalties keep. keep as a create, yes, as a creator, uh, it would be a nice ego stroke for him. But I think that he would probably see a lot of kinship in. Um, some of the TOS stories. Um, I think that he would probably appreciate first. I've thought about this a lot, to be honest. Uh, so you asked the wrong guy, but first we'd have to invent time travel. Then we'd have to convince a guy who was not religious, but was, you know, his parents were Catholic, uh, that the flickering images weren't magic. You know, sure, sure. I think that he yeah. could probably get it pretty quick. And I think it's interesting that a lot of time travel stories, like, I don't know, Dr. Who, yeah. uh, and, and things like that, have Shakespeare coming to the future and being like, I get it. It's a fire that shows you words. I got it. I've made a lot of words. So assume you uh, have I, some psychic paper to show him and that he gets over the hump. So right. now, yes, now yes. He's, he's watching. Get, get past all that. And then, and then what do you think? I think that he would really uh, appreciate uh, DS9. And I think he would uh -huh. appreciate 
uh, the last couple seasons of DS9, I think that he yeah. would really like a character like Damar, you know, a character who yeah, yeah. goes from being a villain and uh, goes into a tragic sort of heroic end. I think he'd really like that. There was an episode of Twilight Zone. I think it was, uh, stick with me, I think it was the 80s reboot of Twilight Zone. Okay. I watched a lot uh, of those, yeah. Shakespeare was brought to the future oh. uh, by just some by some, some quirk, and he was uh, paired up with this guy who was like a, t- a sweaty TV writer, basically. And he's saying, hey, give me some good ideas because I got to get this script done for this bad <laughs> sitcom. And of course, the thrust is that Shakespeare eventually gets in with his agent and with the network and kind of takes over his job <laughs> and is writing crappy TV. Shakespeare would be writing crappy TV. Oh, of course, he would now, be, yeah. That's what they're saying, yeah. yeah. <laughs> He'd be doing the sixth season of Teen Wolf or something like that. That'd be amazing. I would love to see Shakespeare's sixth season of Teen Wolf. Uh, not to call it a Teen Wolf crappy if you're a fan of Teen Wolf <laughs> listener. Sure, it's fine. Well, our revels now are ended, yeah, I think. In. Uh, thanks so much for joining me. Uh, where can people find you online? Sure. I'm uh, www.alangratz.com. That's A-L-A-N-G-R-A-T-Z. I'm on Twitter at Alan Gratz. I'm on Facebook as Alan Gratz. And I just got convinced to go over to the true dark side. And I'm now on Instagram as Alan.Gratz. Yes, I know. So now you can see fascinating pictures of my dog. <laughs> yeah, but you travel so much. <laughs> I do. Uh, you know, I think, yeah, your your readers and listeners would love to uh, see I, pictures. I did put some pictures up from Switzerland, my last, my latest trip. So yes, oh, there's yeah, yeah. also pictures of that as well. Uh, anything that you're working on right now that you can tell us about? Yeah, so the new book that I'm working on, the one that's uh, due in a couple of weeks, ha ha ha, is um, about 9-11. <laughs> um, so mm-hmm. uh, 2021, and this was kind of a stunner for me, uh, is the 20-year anniversary of yeah. 9-11. And yeah. uh, the kids I write for, uh, it's history. It's history to them. They were born after 9-11. My daughter is 17 years old, and she was born the year after 9-11. And um, so for all these middle schoolers, they, they've they heard of what it is. They may have learned a little bit about it, but they don't really know a whole lot about it. A lot of times because um, adults like us have a hard time talking about it because we lived through yeah. it and, and had a hard time with it. And and I found myself having a hard time with it as I write this book. But um, but that is what I'm working on now. And that will come out in early 2021 in advance of the anniversary so that hopefully teachers and librarians can share it with their kids. Absolutely. And follow Alan on Twitter and now on Instagram so you can get updates about his work and when that comes out. Thanks again for joining me, Alan. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. 